Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning and also to be seen by those of you who are watching by way of uh, the YouTube arrangement, which is a wonderful blessing considering the circumstances that we've been in for the last few months. This is the first time that I have worshipped physically in a congregation since mid-March. Uh, I've been doing live streaming uh, for my church in Crystal Springs, which, if you don't know, is just south of Jackson, and recently retired. Some of you out here are saying, well, who is this guy? Uh, let me just explain that briefly. Uh, I grew up in this church. Um, I can remember singing up here as a child, and, and once I got a little older, uh, for a while, in between those two phases, I remember sitting up in the balcony uh, where the church unwisely in those days used to let kids sit up in the balcony and they would gladly do it. And there were a couple of us, I must admit, that took our Sunday school papers and made paper airplanes out of them and sort of dared each other, throw it over, throw it over. <laughs> But my parents were here, and my mom was sitting right up here, look, and she could look straight up there and see me. I wasn't about to do that. I did make the paper airplane. I went that far, but I wouldn't throw it over. Uh, but it was a great blessing to grow up in this church. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, this church has produced uh, a number of ministers and missionaries through the years. There was sort of a spurt of that um, before I decided to go into the ministry and then did. Uh, so I, I am very appreciative of this congregation's influence in my life. It's one of the key influences uh, that enabled the Lord to work in my life in the way that he did. Well, I've been pastoring for the last 45 years, and I just retired as I said, and my wife and I have moved into Billy and Emily Shaw's house, uh, the house I grew up in. And uh, we are enjoying that very much. I guess I had this a little too close. And I'm very thankful that we could come back to our hometown. Uh, and Ed White's been working, seems like continuously, trying to help us get our house fixed up. And he's done a great job, and we're very appreciative of his gifts and abilities. But I want you to uh, join with me in worshiping the Lord as we look into his word. And after I pronounce the benediction, just to let you know, I'm going to come down to the front. I'll have my mask on, and if anybody wants to speak to me, I'll be right down there. But we're living here, enjoying it very much. Um, if I cough, which I'm likely to do, it's because I have a chronic cough. I've had it for a year and a half. It is not COVID. In fact, I was tested Monday, uh, Friday at uh, St. Dominic's for COVID, and I'm okay. I'm having surgery tomorrow, and that's why I was tested for that. We're getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning to go to Jackson for the surgery. So if any of you need a wake-up call... At 3 o'clock, just give me your number, and I'll be glad to accommodate you uh, then. Okay, enough of that. Let's turn in our Bibles to the Word of God. And we're reading this morning from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. 
So turn there, if you would, to Mark chapter 10, where we'll be reading verses 32 through 45. Mark 10, verses 32 through 45. Let us hear the word of God. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles." And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures by which you inspired men to write, the apostles and the prophets to write the word of God. And you have seen to it that that word of God has been available for every generation since how blessed we are. And yet we even, who love the word of God, can take it for granted. May we look at these words now with fresh eyes and may our hearts be opened and our minds ready to hear. Give us understanding. Bless us from your word for our good and your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. There's a fine organization uh, called the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard of 
the Make-A-Wish Foundation, where uh, a terminally ill child uh, is uh, given uh, the special uh, gift of being able to do one thing that he or she would like to do more than anything else while they're still living. And of course, many of them, as you might imagine, would say, I want to go to Disney World. Uh, and the, their wish is granted. And it's all paid for, and they can go and enjoy that, that time in Disney World, or wherever it is they want to go, or whatever it is they want to do. Well, what if you were asked to make a wish or to state to someone who had the power to grant it what you would like? What is the one thing that you would say that you would like to do more than anything else? I'm not saying it's because you're terminally ill. Keep that part out. Just something that in your mind and heart you would love to do more than anything else. What would you say? Well, we're not going to take the time today to go around and let everybody reveal that. Most of you probably wouldn't want to reveal that. Uh, I'm not sure I would either. I'm not even sure how I would answer that. But the disciples were in a situation like that. It was sort of thrust upon ten of them. Because two of them, the other two, basically came to Jesus and made that request, which we'll examine in a minute. But remember, the disciples were still learning about themselves in this episode of the life of Christ. Jesus begins this passage by telling them for the third time that he was going to suffer and die and rise again. He said it in the last two chapters, the previous two chapters, Mark 8, Mark 9, and now Mark 10, he says it a third time. <coughs> Excuse me. But he, but they don't get it. That's why I say they're still learning. That's what a disciple is, you know. It's, a disciple is a learner. You and I, who are Christians, are constantly learning. You know, we don't get all this in one sermon or one Sunday school class or one Bible study. We build. Just like in our educational system, we start where we are as little kids and we build on our knowledge and build and build and build. We have to do that as disciples. So these disciples were at a point where they're still trying to to grasp what Jesus is really saying and the implications of that. In these verses, we find that our sinful dreams of greatness must be restructured into holy desires for servanthood. That's the lesson that Jesus is going to teach here when these two disciples make their request. This is what will make someone truly great before God. Not, not being on, in glory on the right side of Jesus and the left side of Jesus, but being a humble servant while we're here on earth. That's what our focus needs to be. 
So notice with me several things here that I think are, are evident from these verses. First of all, there is a revealing request. In verses 32 through 37, there's this revealing request. Jesus had, had told them in verses 35 through 37 what was going to happen for the third time, as I said. And then the strangest thing comes up after he says that in verse 35. James and John, brothers, their mother was Salome. She appears in the gospel. She was obviously a believer. She was at the cross and at the tomb after Jesus' death and resurrection. And in Matthew 20, in Matthew's version of this, he says that Peter and John's mother came and made this request. And you have to put those two together. <clears throat> the three of them were making this request. Perhaps one spoke and the other spoke, but here... Mark just focuses on James and John. James and John were two of the so-called inner three with Peter. They were the three that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. John was the one who probably was the closest to Jesus in his relationship. And, and James and John, maybe prompted by their mother, of all people come up to Jesus and they make this amazing request. Now think about this when they say this in verse 35, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That would be sort of like a teenager coming up to his mom or dad or both and saying, now look, I want to ask you something, but before I tell you what it is, I want you to go ahead and agree to do it. <laughs> What do you think the parents would say to that? I don't, I don't think they're going to be um, so unwise as to say, oh, it doesn't matter, go ahead, whatever you want. Well, if they're good parents, they won't do that. We want you to do whatever we ask you to do, Jesus. And if I had been Jesus, don't laugh, but if I had been Jesus or in Jesus' spot and, and the disciples made that request, I probably would have read them the riot act. You know, are you crazy? <laughs> I'm not about to do that. But look at how Jesus responds. He says, what do you want me to do? He's going to come back with a correction. We'll see. But all he says is, what do you want? He doesn't say, I'll do it. He just says, tell me what you want. Because he sees this wisely as a teaching lesson, a teaching opportunity. Well, that may sound familiar when you hear people ask things like that, but this isn't the first time that James and John have done something like this. If you flip back a page, maybe uh, one page to chapter 9, and look at verse 31. <clears throat> Jesus here says again what he's going to do. He's going to be uh, delivered over. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, it says. But then in verse 33, after they went to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. 
For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> Sometimes we think these disciples had it all together from the moment Jesus called them. But they're just like us. They're just like us. They've got a lot to learn. Jesus was only with them for a short time, three years. And so here he is constantly showing them what the, being a member of the kingdom of God really was. It was uh, a flip side version of what the world would think. And here he's pointing it out again. And so he sits down with them. <laughs> he could almost hear him say, hold on, hold on, sit down. Let me, let, let me tell you something about your request. And in verse 35 of chapter 9, he, he said, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he went on and used a child as an example. This is very similar. You would think maybe they'd made a little more progress by now in chapter 10, but obviously they hadn't done that. Sometimes we're very slow to learn, aren't we? Some things we pick up learning about what it is to trust the Lord and live God's way. And there are other things that our sinful nature just seems to automatically reject and we turn away from it. And we have to learn it. We have to be taught that again and again. It gets has to get pounded into our minds and hearts before we actually learn it. And that's sort of the way it is with the disciples here. It was a foolish request. It was foolish in the way it was asked because they, they were basically saying, as one writer put it, <coughs> they were saying, all right, here's a blank check, Jesus. It's from the disciples' account. Of course, Judas was the manager of that account. And we want you to just sign the check and we'll take care of the rest. We want to give you a blank check. Bill, put your name on it, and we'll go use it however we want. And, of course, they specify, we want to be at your glory on the right, on your right and on your left. Do we ever have this attitude when we pray? Do we have the attitude sometimes that, Lord, just do this? <laughs> uh, we, we, got, we come really close to trying to command God to do things the way we think they need to be done. Because we're so focused on that issue. And we're not focused on God's will and God's glory in our lives. And so here were these two prominent disciples. They knew something soon was going to happen. They did pick up that much. They understood something big was coming and it was coming quickly. And so they start thinking about the glory of Christ. They had seen the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? But they don't know exactly what's, what's coming up now. But they know that they need to, to step in and strike while the iron is hot. So they do. We want you to let us sit in your glory at your right and at your left. Now, what they are thinking his glory meant, it doesn't really tell us. <coughs> Excuse me again. But it could either have meant when they get to glory in heaven, 
I think there's a good possibility they were still uh, doing what the Jews were thinking, that Jesus was going to set up a kingdom, literal kingdom, there on earth. And uh, they get rid of the, the hated Roman empire and the dominance that they had over them. And Jesus would be the glorified king. And they would be right there as his right-hand man and left-hand man. Sort of like the President of the United States establishing uh, the leadership team for himself or herself. And <coughs> as he does that, uh, these two guys, you know, more could have been two ladies or one, or one each. They could have been kind of pushing their way. You know, we want to get in the West Wing. You know, we want an office right down the hall, either in the West Wing or right down the hall from the Oval Office. That kind of stuff happens, you know. Power. The power and the glory and the influence of that. The request that the disciples make here may seem foolish to you. It seemed foolish to the other ten disciples. You remember reading a little further down there that they weren't too pleased at all. But wouldn't they have had uh, a desire to do that too? Yes, maybe in varying degrees. And yes, maybe a part of us is thinking, I want to be a big shot in the church. I want to be a prominent person in the kingdom of God so that I can be exalted even more in heaven. And of course, we can't do that. And so there's this revealing request. <coughs> the request, the way we pray, the, the things we ask of God tells us a lot about where we are spiritually. And we need to think about that in our own lives. Well, the second thing to note is the correcting rebuke. A revealing request is followed by a correcting rebuke in verses 38 through 42. And in those verses, Jesus does come around to telling them the, what their request reveals. And he tells them, you don't know what you're asking for. You think you do, but you don't. And we're that way. You know, we think we, we think we know and have enough understanding to ask God for certain things. And we may be right on target, and we may be way off target. So we always have to ask with the same attitude that Jesus did when Jesus said, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's the attitude of any Christian in prayer, or should be. So Jesus responds, and he does it very patiently. He's full of patient love, and he wants to show them a better way. Matthew Henry, the great commentator uh, from four centuries ago, said, it is folly to prescribe to God and it is wisdom to subscribe to God. 
Big difference. Folly to prescribe, wisdom to subscribe to God. This request is improperly put, (coughs) as Jesus tells us. In verses 38 and 39, he says, you don't know what you're asking. And then he challenges them. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Usually in the Bible, almost universally, when the Bible refers to the cup, it's referring to the cup of judgment. And remember what I just quoted from Jesus. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Lord, I know that you are going to pour out your judgment for sinners on me. And in his human nature, he's struggling to get to that point of of doing that. You know, Jesus didn't just waltz in uh, to the Roman authorities and waltz up the hill to Calvary. He suffered all the way. But he was submissive. And so he says, you don't understand. Can you do what I'm about to do? And of course they say, sure, we can do that. We can drink that cup. We can undergo the baptism, which means the experience, really, of what you're going to experience. (coughs) So they really don't fully understand. And yet Jesus says, Well, you really are going to do that. It's certainly not going to be in the same way I am. But you remember what happened to James and John? James was martyred. Read about it in the book of Acts. John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos and spent his last years on that island, secluded from the rest of the world by the Roman authorities. So they were going to experience some suffering, but not in the same way that Jesus was. So the request definitely is um, one that needed correction. And it was more like, I don't know, it would be like a child asking an astronaut, hey, when uh, y'all go back up in space again, I want to fly with you. You know, can you do what we're going to do? No, a child doesn't have the ability and the training and the knowledge and all of those things and the physical ability to endure what astronauts have to endure. It's not a vacation. Can you experience what I'm experiencing, says Jesus? James and John are going to suffer for Christ and for his kingdom and cause. Of course, this is a far different view of things, especially James being martyred, far different view of things than Islam has when it comes to to dying. (coughs) Oh, got some water here somewhere. The, the, the Muslims believe that if you die as a martyr, that will get you to heaven. And that's why so many 
through the last decade or two have blown themselves up, you know, or driven vehicles into crowded places and detonated a bomb. They were willing to die because of the glory that they thought they would have by being martyred. It's not what the scriptures are teaching. And Jesus tells them, look, you're asking something that's impossible for me to grant in verse 40. I can't grant that. That's for those for whom it has been determined. Everybody's going to have a place in glory, but we can't force what that's going to be. We simply are called to be faithful in doing what God's called us to do, and the rest will take care of itself. The request is incompatible also with the leadership principles of God's word. Jesus goes on and, and talks about the Gentiles. You know how the Gentiles love to lord it over people and exercise authority over them. It's not going to be that way with you. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. And we all know how it is when people try to elbow their way in and get a little power and a little influence, and it begins to go to their head, and they begin to forget where they once were, low down in the chain of command in their company, and they begin to forget about the people that uh, they loved and, and had associated with, and they begin to think more and more about themselves. You know the famous saying by Lord Acton, who said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The more power a sinner gets, the more dangerous he gets, unless he's under the control of the Holy Spirit as a believer in Christ. But we're talking about unbelievers at this point. The Gentiles love to exercise authority and lord it over people. It shall not be that way with you, he says. That's not the way we're going to operate in the kingdom of God. You know what's interesting about this is something I learned this week from uh, Tim Keller in uh, New York City. Tim Keller talked about how there was going to be glory for Christ. But while he was on earth, especially, the real glory of Christ was demonstrated not on the Mount of Transfiguration so much, as powerful as that was. The real glory of Christ was demonstrated at the cross. And Keller points out that there were three crosses. And there was one thief on the right and one thief on the left. Think about James and John's request. We want to be at your right and your left in your glory. Perhaps they learned something when they beheld Jesus at the cross with one thief who was repentant and the other thief on the other side of Jesus who wasn't repentant. That's more in line with the kind of glory that Christ is talking about. There's a poem that uh, you don't think I can preach without a poem, do you? 
Uh, I'm not sure anybody's ever done that. But be that as it may, uh, there is a poem. I'm not even sure where it is. Here it is. By uh, Robert Raines, who described us as being like James and John. He said, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me. How they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people, ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your directions for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. For I am like James and John. The other ten disciples, they had to realize that it could have easily been them acting that way. And we as followers of Jesus today, we're not above leaning in that direction and moving that way if we're not careful to check ourselves. Now, last thing I want you to note in the last three verses, a higher responsibility a higher responsibility. We've seen a revealing request. We've seen a correcting rebuke. And now a higher responsibility in these verses, verses 43 through 45. So far, we've seen everything that was wrong with the disciples when it comes to true leadership in the kingdom of God. And now Jesus points them to the right way. We will be exalted, he says, but it will be through our service It will be through the acting out and living out of of the role of a servant in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus explains that to them. It shall not be so among you. You will not be like the Gentile leaders. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He's taught that in a number of places during his earthly ministry that we read about in the gospel accounts. The way of greatness is not the world's way of greatness. It's not by grabbing for power and influence over others, but rather by humbling oneself and serving others. It's not by climbing to the top to become first in men's eyes, but it is by waiting on others to meet their needs. And in doing that, of course, Jesus teaches in verse 45 that we'll be following the example of Christ. <coughs> this verse, Mark 10:45, in Mark's arrangement of the gospel, of his gospel, is the key verse in the whole book. It's the turning point from Jesus' early ministry to the disciples to the final week of his ministry, culminating with his crucifixion and death and resurrection. 
And so it's a key in terms of its position in the gospel, but it's key in terms of its content in particular. Jesus showed the way for true greatness. It's a verse that we probably all should commit to memory. When Jesus says, for even the son of man, that was his favorite designation, by the way, uh, for himself. He didn't refer to himself as the Christ or names like that hardly at all. <clears throat> it was always the son of man, hearkening back to Daniel 7 and Daniel's vision of God. And Jesus is saying the son of man is God, God who is with you. And he said he did not come to be served. He came to serve. Now, when I left Columbus, when I was 18 years old, I won't tell you what millennium that was in. <clears throat> but when I left Columbus, I was going to college. I went to college and I went to Bellhaven College at that time. Now it's Bellhaven University. And yeah, I ended up teaching there uh, for 12 years as well. It's just an adjunct teaching uh, adult students, uh, which taught me a lot. Um, but I went to Bellhaven. And I found out that Bellhaven had a motto. And it's on a lot of their literature. It's on some of their signs on campus and all of that. And the motto said, uh, sed ministare, non ministare, or something like that, which being translated is not to be ministered to, but to minister. And that's the, the, uh, the great motto for a student in college. You won't see that in university colleges and, uh, or universities mottos. That's our, that should be our motto. With Jesus as our standard, we're not here to build our own little kingdoms, be our own little gods, and have everything our way. We are here to serve, to do whatever God's will is for us. He may make us CEO of General Motors, he may make us uh, a, a bricklayer, which, oh boy, that's a great skill. We need, we need more people with skills like that, by the way. Uh, people who can fix car engines and plumbers and electricians. My goodness, not everybody needs to be a lawyer. Not everybody needs to be a doctor. So... Jesus is saying, humble yourself and do what I am calling you to do. You are here to serve me and through me to serve other people. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. The greatest act of service that Jesus <coughs> demonstrated <coughs> was beside the cross was when they had the Last Supper. And Jesus got up, you remember, and took off his outer clothing and took a towel and a water basin and began going to each one of the disciples and washing their grimy, stinky feet. 
Jesus. Can you just even begin to, to think about what was going through the minds of the disciples when they saw Jesus doing that? He was the Son of God. He was the King of glory. He was the one that did miracles. He was the one that knew things that people were going to say or do before it happened. He raised the dead. And what does he do? He does what even a servant wouldn't stoop to do. A slave might. A slave was even lower than a servant. And he says, do you know what I've done for you after we finish? I've set an example. That you should love one another as I have loved you. That servanthood, that act of servanthood that Jesus performed was his way of demonstrating how we should be servants. Now, does that mean that we're all supposed to go around washing one another's feet? I can say, not only biblically, but I can say with great thanksgiving, no. But sometimes that does have to happen if you're helping someone who can't help themselves. You may have to change your diaper. You know, you may have to put aside your plans and schedule and preferences because there's somebody that needs to be served. And you are the one to do it. But there's even more significance in that verse, and I want to end with this. He not only came to be served, but to serve, but he says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that phrase is, we could spend a long time just talking about that phrase, to give. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's grace, a free gift providing for our redemption. And here he's saying that the greatest act of suffering was giving his life as a ransom for many. He willingly offered himself up to pay the price that would free his people from the guilt and the bondage of their sin. He ransomed them. And we're to show that same kind of service for the good of others. Now, in practical terms, that has a lot of application. It means that we must see our role in life as servants for the good of others, rather than looking at others as tools to get us what we want. It means that we will have to daily wrestle with our pride and our failure to trust in God by humbling ourselves for others' sake and relying on our Father to take care of us in due time. Service is costly. There's always a price to be paid when you serve someone. Think of the price that Jesus paid. His infinite glorious person, the precious blood of Christ was paid. His death was the payment to ransom us, to rescue us from our sin and guilt. 
And when we serve others, it's going to cost us time. It may cost us energy. It may cost us money. It will cost us something in order to be true service. And that applies in marriage. It applies in work. It applies in church. It applies in our in the whole of our lives. My daughter, my granddaughter, my oldest grandchild, works for Chick-fil-A in Allen, Texas, Plano, Texas. And as all of you who've ever been to Chick-fil-A know, um, when they serve you, and you may say, thank you, and what do they say? My pleasure. And we've kind of kidded our granddaughter about that. Um, my pleasure. I mean, they're taught to do that, but one would hope that they are sincere when they say it. That should be our attitude, too. It is my pleasure to serve you because I, I love you in Christ and I want to help you in Christ in any way that I can. What do you want out of life? Is it to gain for yourself or to serve others for the Lord? We need to turn to the Lord, perhaps, and confess our selfishness where we need to. And we need to ask the Lord, make me a servant. Make me more of a servant than I even realize I'm supposed to be. Give me a servant's heart. Help me to put others ahead of myself. Help me to show Jesus in my life. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that this passage can easily convict us, and perhaps rightly so, where we need to be convicted of our excuses. We're too busy. We don't have the resources. Um, on and on it can go when we are called to serve others. It's a joy when we serve others. It's a way to reveal Jesus is serving us for our salvation. And so we ask you to give us that servant's heart. Make us servants in your kingdom and for your glory in whatever you would have us to do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.